from PowerlineBlog.com and produced by Ricochet.com. This is The Powerline Show with your host, Steve Hayward. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 237. It was uh, almost exactly a year ago that I had Spencer Case on the podcast. Uh, Spencer's a young pal of mine currently doing his postdoc fellowship at Wuhan University in China. And it was at the very first weeks or so of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And he was trying rather desperately in certain respects to get out of Wuhan. And we talked about what he was seeing and what was happening. And he's now back in Wuhan. And so since so many of you wrote to me saying, how's your friend doing? How did he do when he got home? Uh, I decided to have him back on the one year anniversary to talk about, um, you know, how he passed the year, what it was like and what Wuhan is like today. And then from there, we veer off into some of our favorite subjects of contemporary uh, and Enlightenment era academic philosophy. Trust me, it's actually pretty interesting. And without further ado... Here is Spencer Case. Well, Spencer, it was, I think, almost exactly a year ago that we recorded a podcast from Wuhan at the very beginning of the outbreak. You know, the news was out that uh, Wuhan was the epicenter. I'd seen some social media posts from you about uh, what you were seeing from your, what, 15th floor, whatever your apartment is, and, you know, difficulties emerging in the town, including your own difficulties getting a ride to the airport to bug out. And so you did get out. And now you're back. So I'm not quite sure where to start, but I guess, first of all, tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, getting out a year ago. I know you had to spend 14 days in quarantine, I think, at Travis Air Force Base. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, what it was like getting out of town at the beginning of all this a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I, the best account I've given of this was in my National Review article, Escape from Wuhan, which came out in the magazine, I think in March of last year or late February, in any event. So yeah, I uh, did get a call from the embassy with uh, an opportunity to leave. They sent emails out to all known American citizens in the area. And I had sort of been conflicted about whether I wanted to leave or not. Um, I didn't want to be separated from my girlfriend. But it seemed like it was the best thing to do at the time. So I decided to do that. And uh, it was tricky getting a ride to the airport, but she helped me with that. And uh, and I flew out from there. We were at, There was a bunch of us at the airport, um, like little gr- groups of nationalities. There was like a Russian group, you know, on the other side of the <laughs> terminal. And uh, And I saw my girlfriend there. She was assisting with the evacuation. And, uh, you know, we were, we were a bunch of us, I don't know, hundreds of people waiting until like midnight. I arrived at like four and waited, waited till midnight and they sorted us into different, different playing groups. And, uh, it it was like, like hollowed out military cargo planes. Um, and we finally took off at like 5 a.m. Mm. No, no, we know we got on the plane at 5 a.m. And I think we, I, I don't remember. We were on the tarmac for a few hours. Oh, and then we landed um, in California. And it was just about the same time we took off the same day. Because oh. of, <laughs> so it was pretty right. disorienting. 
and uh, and then so it was at uh, Fort Travis Air Force Base, and I remember I was basically a zombie at that point because it had been a long day, and then I can't sleep on planes, so I was just about as tired as I'd been in my whole life. And there was a worker there who just sort of wryly says, uh, "Here's your uh, paperwork to." read during your read at your leisure and you're going to have a lot of leisure <laughs> yeah and you were i think 14 days on the base there yeah 14 days i yeah. um i could go outside wasn't as intense as the quarantine i had to do on my way back but we'll get to that yeah yeah so and you never did catch covid though the whole the whole year no did i never you? did no yeah um i heard my brother just came down with it however unfortunately in idaho yeah you know, it's well, yeah. I mean, we all know this now. It's a strange. Some people hit it gets hits them very hard at whatever age, and other people it seems to have mild symptoms. I don't. I don't. I still don't have a good grasp of the whole thing. Um, so, hey, what did you do for your whole year? I mean, I know you're working on a book, and you're you know you're working on a postdoc, and and you know we'll go through some of that. But uh, what did you go stay with your family? I guess I stayed with my family in Idaho, in McCammon, Idaho, and did a bunch of reading and a bunch of writing. I was eager to satisfy my contract for Wuhan, which they wanted me to do two or three papers published in index journals um, in philosophy, which, you know, that doesn't sound so hard, but, you know, it just takes time to do. Publication in, in philosophy is particularly difficult. And so I, I was able to do it. I got three publications accepted after, you know, a lot of delays and difficulties and stuff. And so that was mostly what I was what I was focusing on. I uh, kept in touch with my girlfriend. We were using WeChat 2 hours a day or more to video video chat and uh and then I I started my own podcast um while I was while I was home. Well, I'm gonna, I want to talk about your podcast in a minute. I, I meant to say at the very top, congratulations. You were and your girlfriend, you proposed you're going to get married. Yes, we're engaged are. now. Yes. Yeah, we're engaged. Congratulations. Thank so you. So now you're 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 back in Wuhan for just a few weeks, I think, right? When did you go back and and tell walk us through what that involved? Oh boy. So I was thinking I was going to be in the US for maybe a couple of months and then this thing I I was still thinking this was going to be a Wuhan centered event, this whole COVID thing. And that turned out not to be true. So obviously, so I was stuck in the U.S. for a while. Um, wasn't able to get back until the middle of November. So they there were really strict requirements for returning to China, and in particular, they wanted two negative COVID tests that were taken. You've taken the the test, and then you've gotten the results. And then you sent them to the embassy or the consulate, depending on what state you're in, and you've gotten it approved. And they, um, they want all of that to take place within 48 hours of the flight. So in Idaho, that's not even possible. Like I talked to <laughs> like pharmacists, I talked to people who are really dialed in and like the health system there, and they just like no, the kind of tests, like not the rap, the rapid ones don't count. Like the accurate ones, you know, taking like three to five days, you could not possibly get it done in that amount of time. And it isn't just 48, it's actually less than 48 hours because it's 48 hours to the flight that will take you to China. So if you have a connecting flight 
to like LAX or something, that comes out of your 48 hours. So it's just like a really narrow um, time. So I what I ended up doing is driving a rental car down to California, and I found this place that has a sketchy name, 123 Medical Group. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, all Chinese uh, workers there and um, mostly Chinese clientele, but they were really, really dialed in in the process. And they got me my tests like the same day. And then I sent them to the consulate and um, they, they got, got it approved and, and, and then I was off. And uh, I, but it was one of those things where like I, I went to the airport and then I showed them my, my test results and there were a bunch of, people at Air China like huddled around checking them looking at my passport and I'm like oh please god don't find anything wrong with this you know <laughs> and um and they're like okay you're good to go and uh so then um we we flew to China you know we landed in Guangzhou and then we got off at like five in the morning and they and a new battery of tests and stuff. And they gave me this, this COVID test at the airport, um, the uh, airport there. That was the most unpleasant one that I've, I've had. It was like, Ooh. I mean, I mean, yeah, they really, it was like, it seemed like it was three times as thick as the thing they stuck in my nose in the U S. So, so that was bad. And they they kept us there at the airport like for like till noon, you know. And then finally they they drove us to the uh, the uh, Hampton Hilton, or at least that's where my bus went to. And we had to pay up front um, for two weeks two weeks stay, and then I had to stay in my room the whole time. So it wasn't like it wasn't like Travis Air Force Base. You had to stay at the hotel and you could walk around, but like. No, I was literally in a hotel room um, for two weeks straight. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, I just continued to read and write and stuff. And uh, the day before I was released, my girlfriend uh, went to my window and waved to me, and I got a picture of her doing that. <laughs> and then and I was released, you know, and we spent a week in Guangzhou sort of exploring the city and went back to Wuhan. And then there were further things I had to do when I was in Wuhan. I had to, um, let's see, I've got like two or three apps. I have to upload my temperature into every day. And uh, there's like a, a green barcode that they're, they're now starting to demand that you show in order to get into public places that says that, you know, you don't have a fever, you don't have symptoms. Yeah. So anyway, they're still pretty diligent about it. I mean, it's, you know, trying to get into Wuhan university I mean, they've got it surrounded, like barricaded, like the whole university. It's like, I went there for a conference last week and it was like trying to cross the Berlin wall or something. I mean, it was like, <laughs> You know, they showed me, I showed them the, the green barcode and they're like, they didn't believe me. They thought I had just taken a picture of one. And so I had to like log out and log back in and show them a second time. And then they were like, reluctantly, okay, I guess you can go in. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen some videos of, you know, checkpoints and various things happening, and I'm never quite sure how representative they are of the whole scene, right? I mean, it's the crazy world we live in. Um, what, what's the, uh, I mean, I remember vaguely, I, I've forgotten the details, but I remember you describing what things were like in Wuhan as the outbreak was happening and China was scrambling to try and contain it. And, you know, people at markets, I don't know, there's spontaneous social distancing. And now you're back. What is there a visible difference between a year ago and now? What what's described the scene to me now, and and what differences that you're able to observe, if any? Well, everybody's still wearing masks, um, although it's a little bit odd, and you can sort of get the sense that it's it's sort of become ingrained as a sort of social convention. Like people will go, people will always wear masks to travel to where they're getting to, and then they'll sit down and mostly take them off. Um, so I'm not sure if there's any real logic to it or if it's just now more of like a social courtesy type thing. But, you know, it wasn't like when you first start seeing everybody in surgical masks, you're like, okay, what the hell is going on? That is <laughs> disturbing. But now, you know, it's just sort of the normal thing and people have been doing it for a while. And it isn't, it isn't alarming in the same way. Um, I went out for New Year's Eve, and it was a pretty normal, you know, New Year's Eve celebration. Uh, and my my girlfriend, now fiance, did, and uh, I guess everybody was out on New Year's Eve. People were really, really happy to be out. I think there, I even saw some news stories in, um, in U.S. media about how people were living it up in, in Wuhan. And then, like after the after the New Year's thing, we couldn't get a we couldn't get cabs home until like five in the morning because so many people <laughs> so many people were out. So um, things really have lightened up in Wuhan, despite you know these sort of uh, vestiges of the really hardcore lockdown, which I missed. By the way, I was out before things got really intense. Um, my colleagues uh, Matt Lutz and Tim Perrine both were through the the actual lockdown. And uh, Matt, in my most recent podcast, um, the first 10 minutes or so, he's describing that. And when they say lockdown here, they put razor wire around your building and someone brings you your groceries and for two or three months. And a single person in the city has it and they continue the lockdown for two more weeks. And that's how they did it. Mm. And I people aren't going to... With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to hear this, but the evidence seems to be that that was effective. And uh, the reason I think that's a little disturbing is 
because I was telling Matt, you know, we don't want to hear that like authoritarian type measures can actually be effective. Yeah. It's a disturbing thing. Like, um, even if the, even if this is like the most effective way to deal with something like COVID, the most cost effective way to deal with it. I don't know if I want to live in a country where people are ready to say, okay, I'll live behind barbed wire because you tell me to, you know, it's a, it's an unsettling thought. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It just doesn't fit Americans very well. And I think a lot of Europeans, too. I mean, you may be following the stories. There are riots in the Netherlands, of all places, in Germany. And I mean, everybody's revolting against, uh, um, what's you know, this inconsistent policy we've had. Oh, so by the way, I was going to ask that. Are, are they are restaurants allow indoor dining? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got indoor yeah, dining okay. now. Yeah, because that's still a big issue here in California and other places. So, So when I was passing through California, I mean, you can tell me about this, but it looked to me like it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't a Wuhan lockdown, but it was obvious that things were not normal. And, yeah. you know, all these outdoor dining, even though it was November, it wasn't that cold because it's California, but it wasn't that warm either. Right. And I just sort of thought that, you know, if you're going to do a lockdown, it's better to do the, the Wuhan razor wire, nobody moves for two months thing, than to have this drag on in this sort of pseudo lockdown that isn't really effective for 10 months and still you have escalating numbers or something. Yeah. Yeah. That, that could be right in the abstract. Yeah. I've, I've, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm no expert. Yeah. I'm speculating here, but right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, you know, first time we've been through something like this. Um, uh, so, all right. So now you're, you're back and how long are you back for? I mean, did, how, I didn't, I'm not sure. I wasn't clear how long your fellowship was or if they extended it or, how long are you planning to be back in Wuhan? Well, let's see. So it it ends at, at the end of this semester, so like May, and um, I will. Uh, I I applied to see to see if I could get a professorship here, but it doesn't look very likely. Uh, they normally they could extend it, but they have these age restrictions for some attached to some of these positions in China, and I'm um, can you believe it? Two months too old. <laughs> right. That. So, right. Uh, that how, what kind of luck is that? But I'm applying for for philosophy jobs. Um, I did make a long list somewhere, um, a place in Hong Kong, which would be great. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah. But uh, you know, I'm not going to starve. I've got a PhD, and I can write, and you know, I could obviously teach English. So we'll figure something out. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about. Um, um, philosophy and what you're doing. Let's start with your podcast, uh, which I have to confess, Spencer, I haven't, I keep meaning to listen to it and I haven't got to it, but I'm going to now that we're talking about it, but tell me about your podcast and what your subjects are, who some of your guests are and where we can find it. Right. Okay. So my podcast is called micro digressions with a, <laughs> with a hyphen micro hyphen digressions. Right. Um, I started it, I, I recorded a couple of episodes as tests in 2019, and then later later released them in 2020. It's been something I've been meaning to do. Um, it's a problem. I thought, like, people aren't, enough people are not inviting me on their podcasts, so I guess I'm going to have to start my own. Um, but I wanted to just have conversations with, you know, philosophers about various things, various topics. And so it's been something I've been meaning to do for a while. So the very first episode that I uploaded was with my um, 
colleague, uh, Ryan Jenkins. I don't know if you met Ryan. I think you did. Um, I don't know. Was he was he at Colorado once? Or yeah, he was at he was at Colorado. But oh, okay. um, I might have. He does philosophy of technology, and so I, the fir- the first episode was called "The Dark Side of Technology." Although that one had a more of a formal feel, like I'd written out all of my questions and and all of that. But now I, it's sort of they're sort of more conversational. So some other topics I've talked about, um, like is liberalism in decline? Is one I've had is, and like what would be the evidence of that? Uh, I had one on relativism. I had one on overcoming anger. Um, this most recent one was on um, disagreement, philosoph- hmm. uh, philosophical conundrums surrounding disagreement. And I had one on cancel culture. That was one of the more popular ones. By one of the more popular, I mean a few hundred downloads. So, you know, not popular, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and I had the one with um, Philippe. Lemoine on the limits of scientific authorities he had about 500 downloads and that's that's the most popular episode oh, and I think I it's one of the better ones all of those yeah, yeah. I think yeah. you'll enjoy it yeah yeah all right let's do some I'm calling these lightning round questions but there's no reason you have to answer oh, hold on, one hold on. I just sentence. wanted to say and oh, you can yeah. find it you can find it on Spotify it's on Spotify ah okay good good um so some lightning round questions although you don't have to make lightning answers. In fact, probably better if you don't. You'll see why. Um, okay, I, I've been lately having a partner game with people. Who is the worst modern thinker, modern philosopher? You, you don't have to confine it to formal academic philosophers, but who is the most insidious and damaging modern philosopher that you can single out, if you can only limit it to one? Oh, man. Oh, geez. It's hard, right? There's so many, right? Well, and, you know. the thing is, is, you think of somebody that you think is insidious, and then you think of who influenced that person, yeah. And, and you can basically trace them all back to Descartes or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> who is who is insidious? Oh boy, I'm gonna. The thing is, I'm gonna think of so many. Yeah. As, so, as soon as um, as soon as this conversation's over. Well, I, go ahead and name two or three. I mean, I don't know. They don't have to be well, literally rank order. Okay. Uh, I, I, David Hume was brilliant, but I think. He was wrong on so many things, and um, his his influence has not been has not been salutary on philosophy. Oh, is my opinion. Yeah. Um, he's uh, the thing I particularly dislike about David Hume is, you know, with with the ancient skeptics, they had this idea of skepticism as as a way of life. So you sort of suspend judgment about things in order to achieve this sort of peace and freedom from dogmatism or something. Whereas Hume would, would come up with these arguments for radical skepticism that were completely insulated from the way he would live his life. So he would, you know, ar- arrive at some kind of skepticism about morality and then, and then shrug and say, well, but I'm just sort of determined by the law of nature, laws of nature to think in a certain way. And so that doesn't, that need not affect any of my day-to-day life. And so you get all these philosophers now who will make similar moves where they'll say, um, you know, I'm a moral error theorist, I'm a nihilist. And then they'll go on and they'll condemn the Iraq war or whatever. And you'll say, <laughs> Oh, interesting. What's with that? I thought you were an error theorist. And they'll say, 
yes, but blah, blah, blah. You know, when I say moral, there's an asterisk attached to it and it doesn't really have anything to do with my meta ethics. And I really hate this <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 So, so he would be one, um, you know, on the social justice side, I don't really know who to blame, you know, where, <laughs> where it really got bad, but, um, you know, there are all of these, uh, I, all of these thinkers who I think are, are particularly, particularly bad. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, uh, I complain frequently about Peggy McIntosh and her, um, uh, invisible knapsack stuff, her white privilege stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've heard of her. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, it's amazing. You can get 6,000 citations for writing two versions of the same op-ed <laughs> and like yeah. not even, not even a peer review publication. And yeah, anyway, so much of, so much of this white privilege stuff is just Peggy McIntosh warmed over. And, you know, it wasn't good the first time. So now what about, you know, the uh, all these French post-structuralists or whatever the hell you call them, you know, Foucault, Baidu, and then there's that crazy Zizek guy. Do we even consider them philosophers or are they just posers? I don't know. Why don't you read them and tell me? Well, I've tried. And I mean, uh, you know, yeah. the, the old Frankfurter guys who, you know, not to geek out too much on this, but I've tried reading Horkheimer and Adorno and, you know, we'll go along for a paragraph and it's mildly interesting and then it gets weird and incomprehensible. And I'm thinking this, uh, this, anyway, I, I don't, I, I, yeah, I have a hard time taking it. I, I'm quite convinced that nobody's going to read these people a uh, hundred years from now. Uh, we may still read Rawls. Um, we still read Hume and Locke, but nobody's going to read Foucault a hundred years from now, I don't think. I know, you know, he's got 700,000 citations in Google yeah. Scholar. Yeah, and I'm convinced most of the people who cite him have not read him either. Um, so I think it's just now it's passed around like a, you know, a lucky penny or some darn thing. Anyhow, now, I've heard okay. people say, I've heard people say that like, like Foucault and Derrida, that like, if you really dig in deep, you can find good things in there. You can find lessons that are actually valuable, but... I'm just not inclined to to do that search myself. <laughs> it's too, too many painful, other things, right? To yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I, uh, I there's the old line of Samuel Johnson. I think it was the I forget what it was about, but it was one of his reviews where he said, "What's new is not original, and what's original is not wait, no, what's good is not." How'd that go? I'm screwing it all up here. Uh, it was all about how you know what, what is serviceable. I think, and all those people is actually not new. Uh, and what's original isn't any good, um, but oh, yeah. okay, leave those guys behind. Uh, I, I'll have to go look up how that formula goes. Uh, well, let's flip up, flip around and look at the other side. Who are your favorite or do you think most important or interesting modern or contemporary philosophers? By modern or contemporary, well, those mean two well, different things, right? Like, like modern uh, means Descartes and later, and contemporary means still living or recently deceased. Yeah. Oh, let's let's put those in two halves then, because um, uh, I do kind of want to hear. I don't know. You know, I always hear about Saul Kripke, for example, and I've never read him. And I gather he's you know a big name in the field. And I've heard a few of the other names. They aren't household names like Hume. Well, Hume's not a household name, but you know he's part of the long tradition. So uh, go ahead and do modern philosophers as you know post Descartes or whoever you want to name. And then I'd like to ask the same question about contemporary uh, philosophers. 
Yeah. So I think I, I like Thomas Reed quite a bit. He is. Oh, I do too. I love yeah. to hear. I'll, I'm delighted to hear that. Sorry, I interrupted. Keep going. Oh no. I I mean, he really got a bad rep. He was he was very influential on like the founding fathers of the U.S. I'm sure you know, and he was. He was sort of the anti-Hume, which is why I like him, you know. And so he kind of he kind of fell out of favor. You know, he advocated common sense philosophy, and that was that was sort of like the slogan of his philosophy. But a lot of people thought that it was just, you know, pounding your his hand on the table and insisting that skepticism was stupid or something like that. And he has these rhetorical moments where it does sound like that, but there's really a lot more going on. And so he fell out of favor for a long time and he's sort of been enjoying a revival for the last few decades. And I think, I think good for him. I, uh, I thought about doing, doing some work on Reed, but you know, I'm, just busy with other things. So I think he's really good. And the other person I think is, is good and underappreciated is, um, CS purse. Who's oh, often, yeah. often lumped in with the pragmatists, uh, James and Dewey, but really is his, his own original thinker. He's quite difficult to, to get a handle on, but, uh, but I've, I've come to appreciate him and, you know, his, his theory of science, it's really very sophisticated. And, uh, you know, deserves to be explored more. Yeah. Now, what about some modern figures? I, you know, Kripke is the name that lops, jumps into my head, but there are others that I've, whose names I've recognized, but who I've never actually tried to read with any care. Yeah. So let me think. Um, you know, I, I mean, aside I, from Spencer Case, that goes without saying. But. Oh, right, right. <laughs> um, a minor, a very minor figure. Um, let's see. There's not like one person I think is someone I want to be the disciple of. I do really like Thomas Nagel. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Um I do really like Derek Parfit. Oh, okay. Yeah, um Derek Parfit who who died a few years ago. Um he was uh he wrote uh Reasons and Persons and On What Matters and he's su- supposed to have been the uh, or many considered him the best living like ethical theorist, and uh, I don't wouldn't necessarily I don't know swear by all of his views, but he was very careful. He's uh, very clear in his writing, and he uh, convinced Peter Singer to be a moral realist. So mm. I'll give him give him credit for that. So I I quite like Derek Parfit, um, you know. But there's no one person I think this person's got it all right or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard of Parfit. I've I've never read him. I've read some of Nagel and followed some of the controversies about him over the years. Um, Elizabeth Anscombe is she a philosopher? She's on my pile of people I'm supposed to read. I'm told. Oh, she's a philosopher. Yeah, she's a yeah. philosopher. Um, I haven't read that much of her. I mean, she's definitely very intelligent, but she has a. Um, she has this tendency, I think, in her reading to be really dismissive of, of views she doesn't like, and that's kind of a turnoff to me. Yeah, yeah, right. So let's uh, let's go back a little bit to China and what you're up to there. So you know, you're there in a postdoc fellowship, and you're supposed to publish, and I think you're working on a book. Uh, two books. Two books. Oh my. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are they? 
So there's one that I am co-authoring with my colleague, Matt Lutz. And uh, I think that the the working title now is um, Are Right and Wrong Real? Not a big fan of the title, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll see if that can be renegotiated. But um, it's, a, it's a, a book that gives an introduction to metaethics, which is the branch of philosophy that deals with the most abstract ethical questions. And, and I'm going to be arguing for moral realism, the idea that there are objective moral truths, roughly. And he's going to be arguing for both skepticism and error theory or nihilism in ethics. Mm-hmm. So, so there'll be, there's a part that we're working on now that it's co-authored by us. And then I'll have an essay arguing for my view. He'll have an essay arguing for his view and we'll both respond to each other. So that's the one I'm working on right now. Well, that's a great format that I think is much neglected. I think there should be more of that kind of thing. They're yeah. they're starting to do more of them, and that's good. Yeah. And what's the second book? The other one is called Why It's Okay to Be Patriotic. Oh, that's especially useful just now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that one, let's see. I'm supposed to have the manuscript finished in um, at the end of 2023. So at, at the moment, it's pretty early on. I'm researching and making notes and things like that. So it'll probably be next year when I really start, you know, digging in and, and writing it in earnest. So uh, I worry, though, where my country is going to be in 2024 when it comes out. <sighs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, who knows? Um, uh, let me ask a question, another question about China. I know you're not teaching, you're there as a research fellowship. Um, and so you're not in the classroom with students. And so maybe uh, what I'm curious about, you don't, may, may not have any perspectives on, uh, I, you know, I keep hearing, you know, now and then you read stories in the New York Times, uh, some intellectual journals about Chinese liberalism. And by that, I mean, you know, Chinese students and Chinese intellectuals who are interested in Tocqueville, uh, interested in certain Western philosophers. Um, and I'm never quite sure what to make of all that um, and and whether it might be regarded as, you know, subversive to a one party country and so forth. Uh do you pick up any of that, or or, or do you are there are there interesting things you've observed about the intellectual scene in China, or are you too busy keeping to your knitting? I mean, basically, yeah, that. I mean, I uh, I am pretty much working on my own research projects, and I'm not really well situated to sort of detect the intellectual currents that are going on here. My Chinese is really not very good, um, so. Yeah, you. I would not be the best person to ask that, but I'll just say I hope that's true. I hope the de- Tocqueville and these others are getting a good hearing here. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hope too. But you know, who knows? Um, well, I'm trying to think. Is there anything else I should ask you, or anything else on your mind? I mean, I know you're, you know, like me, you're wondering where the heck this darn country of ours is going. Um, uh, but what else uh, distracts you these days? What else distracts me? <laughs> well, I, I meant that. I didn't mean that literally distracting, but, you know, what else is on your listening mind? Listening to a lot from... of jazz. Oh, yeah. Listening oh, to a lot of jazz. Oh, you're able to dance over there, right? Yeah. You know, you're, uh, well, listeners should know that you're a real I... champion swing dancer. Well, that's going a little far. But, yeah, I, I like to swing dance. I uh, I went to a swing dance party for New Year's. That's what I was doing then. But uh, 
the the swing dance club isn't meeting now because of the the heightening covid problem it's ah, been right. ticking up with chinese new year and all um and so i haven't been able to go out and um you know dance lately but hopefully hopefully things will subside again when the chinese new year is over and and i'll be back out there all right well, thanks, Spencer. It's great to catch up with you, and good luck with uh, with your, all of your projects. And uh, we'll catch up with you again uh, in a few months uh, when, when you've got some progress to report. Great. Good to talk to you again, Steve. Well, there you have it. A few minutes with Spencer Case, who, if you ask me, is one of the bright lights in philosophy these days. And I'll say that even if you don't ask me. But in any case, do give a listen to his Micro Digressions podcast. Uh, it does offer some accessible uh, entries to modern philosophy. Uh, and also you can follow his popular writings at National Review Online, uh, Quillette, and uh, some other sites. Uh, I don't have much to add today. So because we were talking a bit about the pandemic, we're going to get out today with Down With Disease by one of those hippie jam bands. I forget which one. Anyway, bye-bye, everybody. Don't forget to milk the soft power dividend. We'll be back uh, in a few days with a three-whiskey happy hour. Ricochet. Join the conversation.